0: A lot of the delivery or engineering practices were waterfall based. There was really not a lot of focus or, or a lot of priority paid to optimizing the delivery model, meaning you know the frequency at which code updates were made. And this really created a world where you know you had tools, processes, and people's skill sets, in fact, which were siloed by platform or, or by project. I think we all understand or, or realize that this was, this was particularly applicable to uh, applications running in the mainframe world. But if you look at sort of the app,
1: Welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Dez Blanchfield. Today, I have the privilege of being joined in the studio by two amazing subject matter experts from the Broadcom mainframe software division. Let me introduce them individually. Firstly, let me start with uh, Peter Wissell. Peter is a director of product management and strategy uh, inside Broadcom's mainframe software division. Peter, great to have you on the show. Thanks for making time to join us.
0: Hey, Dez. Thanks for having me.
1: An absolute pleasure. And we're also joined by George DeCandio. Now, George is the Chief Technology Officer also within Broadcom's mainframe software division. And George, great to have you here. Again, thanks for making time to join us on the show. Thanks,
2: Des. Thank I- I can't believe I finally made it to Conversations with Des. I am a big fan of podcasts, so thanks for having me.
1: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And look, you're absolutely right. It is so long overdue, and uh, that's probably my fault. I've had a long list of of your amazing team that I've I've had the opportunity to have on the show that uh, I've quite literally, quote-unquote, been nagging the team to say, can I please have you guys on? So today, for our audience, just to quickly uh, cap on what we're going to chat about, we're going to talk about a range of things, obviously, around the mainframe space, but particularly around DevOps. And we're going to talk about from a technology point of view, what are the, the technology benefits and, and why do you go down this route and what has Broadcom been doing about it? We're also going to look at the business benefits and, and where this makes sense from a commercial aspect and an operational aspect. We're going to talk about like, the challenges and opportunities on the mainframe from a DevOps perspective. We're also going to then look at the impact and the potential for opening up the mainframe and what that actually means, uh, which we've spoken about in general with a number of your peers, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting both of your take on that. Then we're also going to just generally talk about uh, sort of the medium to long term view of kind of what Broadcom's doing on the mainframe platform uh, as a, an ecosystem and environment uh, from the DevOps world and some of the key initiatives. Um, but before we do that, I wonder, gentlemen, if I could maybe start with each of you uh, to sort of just get a general sense of kind of what a day in the life is like. And I wonder, Peter, if we could maybe start with you uh, in, inside your role as a director for a product management strategy. I wonder if you could maybe just give a sense of what is a day in the life, uh, of Peter uh, Wiesel, like? Uh, and I know it's a bit tricky because it's 2020 and we're sort of coming at the end of the year and, and looking to ease into 2021. Maybe could you just give a general sense of you know what your role is like and what it entails and, and a bit of a sense of what it would normally be like and any highlights that sort of 2021 uh, has brought into this and how that's changed?
0: Yeah, that's, sounds good, Des. So, uh, you know, I think in a product management or a strategy role, you could imagine, you know, on a daily basis, I'm doing, you know, a lot of the typical things that you would expect uh, in terms of bringing the uh, business side of the conversation to the table you know, as Broadcom looks to uh, figure out, uh, you know, its product direction, uh, what kind of areas we want to focus on strategically and so forth. I think the thing that I I get the, you know, kind of the most fun out of is interacting with clients on a regular basis, understanding, you know, the challenges and the pain points that they're experiencing. uh, And also, you know, based on that, helping our clients realize the value in our solutions uh, so we do that quite a bit at Broadcom. Uh, you know, we get, uh, we're heavily invested in the client relationship. Uh, and so a good part of my day is really focused on, you know, w- what does it mean to have a closer relationship with the client? What does it mean to, you know, really understand uh, how they're adopting our our solutions and, and so forth? I think, you know, the point you made about, uh the pandemic and and COVID is is pretty interesting i think the biggest change that we've seen in our day-to-day work lives uh, apart from you know the partial work from home thing uh is really around the fact that no one's traveling uh and you know that's that's you know largely been one of these things where at first you know it seemed kind of scary oh my gosh how are we going to stay in touch with our clients uh, but in fact, we've done a lot of really creative things to, to keep in touch. And, and, you know, this podcast here is a really good example of that. You know, you're all the way over there in Australia. You know, we're here in the United States, but it feels like we're right next door to each other, if not in the, in the same room. Indeed. And so, you know, we're adopting a lot of a lot of virtual conferences and a lot of, you know, virtual formats to to keep in touch.
1: In fact, yeah. And, and we'll get into that in a little bit because, I, I mean, you've been running a number of these initiatives even pre-COVID, but COVID-19 has, has definitely brought them wow. to the forefront and, and I guess highlighted how you've been ahead of the game for, for, for many years, decades, probably, uh, and now it's it's actually you know coming to the forefront and and, and demonstrating the value of that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I appreciate that, and I, and I in fact I really liked your point your point around just I guess um, the initial fear factor or concern of as it were around you know what does it mean if we can't travel and can't see each other, and then we realize actually you know what we we can get through this. Uh, and we'll come back to another point as well, because I know uh, chatting to the rest of your team that you are actually back in the office now. Uh, and I believe that the from a, from a management and executive point of view, you were back in the office early as a leadership thing. And then now the rest of the organization is coming back in as well, which I'll come back to you in a minute for a comment. But um, let me just uh, briefly uh, get George to give us a little quick intro in his role, if you don't mind. And thank you for that, uh, Peter. Um, George, when we think about your role, Chief Techno- Technology Officer, it it sounds like a role that we're all familiar with. But I, I, I mean, when I think about it inside the mainframe software division inside Broadcom, it it probably has a fairly unique, uh, uh tweak on it. I wonder if you could maybe give us a, a sense of when we think about your world, George candio and, and CTO of this space. What is a normal day in the life of George DiCandio as CTO inside? Broadcom's mainframe software division, like and and similarly, uh, as, as Peter outlined, you know what have been some of the impacts, sort of as a result of the twenty twenty experience.
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, my primary job is really running a team of sort of super powered architects that that you know help out all the areas of our software mainframe software division. Many of them are distinguished engineer level or or very close to that level, and. Uh, You know we're responsible for the technology that gets in our products uh, making sure that it's consistent and so forth making sure that it's very secure that we're following all the rules of system integrity so that you know sort of what our our customers are expecting but we take that very seriously but a part of the job that you might not expect a, a good part of the job is is working with people like Peter in the product management role and really um, helping understand how the technology that's on the horizon affects our customers, affects our products, and potentially presents opportunities to Broadcom. So we're constantly evaluating technology and having conversations with product management around how that might affect our portfolio. Peter mentioned interacting with customers. um, Typically Oh I would be traveling and meeting with customers almost regularly, understanding you know the challenges perhaps or or the successes that they're having with our products and the technology that we bring to market. My day job, of course, is a, a lot of WebEx meetings with um, engineering teams uh, our our architects are of course responsible for making sure that the the right technology is being implemented the right way throughout the engineering team, so we have a, a lot of interaction with them as well.
1: And, I mean, you, you've got a global team, so you, you, you're no stranger to, as you said, you know, the, sort of WebExes or Zooms or, or conference calls and so forth. Uh, I mean, it, you've obviously gone through this process now of sort of returning to the office, as we sort of phrase it in 2020 speak. But uh, in your experience, uh, Peter, I mean, uh, that was the shift to sort of working remote uh, a stark contrast, or was it something that you fairly naturally – move to just, you know, through either necessity or, 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 or you know, design, uh, and to, to now return to, has that sort of become a fairly natural state that you think will extend beyond sort of, you know, 2020?
0: You know, I think that's an amazing question. I, and I, and I've thought about this quite a bit because, you know, out of necessity, we all needed to figure out how to work from home and how to deal with, uh, Zoom or WebEx and, and so forth. Um, I think a lot of people envision that you know productivity productivity would take a hit. Um, that, that's not been my experience in in you know some of my prior roles. I think one of the most amazing things that has happened, and and, and we experienced this today. Uh, we were on a webex earlier, and you know one of the guys was working from home, and uh, you know his his kid walks in the his eight year old kid walks in the room. Uh, and gives him a sandwich, and, and then the kid stands there and he kind of waves to everybody on the WebEx. <laughs> and the, the amazing aspect of that is, you know, we all have these professional lives, and we're all very proper uh, and so forth in, in our professionalism. But I think this sort of casual aspect of, uh, you know, seeing each other, you know, in our home environments has, has brought a human element back, which is badly needed. Um, and, and I really hope that as, you know, folks regather in the workplace, they bring that with them.
1: Yeah, I think that's a lovely thought. It always reminds me, and I'm sure you're both very familiar with this. You know, whether it's uh, your own big events or or share or or some of the IBM activity that you do. You know, whether it's Think and, and World of Watson and other events like that. You know, people that would normally be in suits would rock up in jeans and a sports jacket and very comfortable in a quote unquote professional exactly. environment, but then go back to their, you know shining suits of Armani, as I like to jokingly call them. So I, I think you're absolutely right, and, and I too desperately hope that we sort of get to that point where I refer to as we've rehumanized in many ways, and that it's okay. It's okay to see a cat tail go past the webcam, and it, it is absolutely perfectly normal for our children to bring a sandwich or a coffee to us and a glass of water, whatever the case may be, or even just wave. And uh, you know, whether it's a customer or whatever, I think we've had this, this kind of. You know, what I refer to as the Instagram reality where everything looks polished and, and clean because we thought that was what had to happen. But in reality, it, it wasn't, you know, and that, that nonsense of putting a tie That's on right. for a meeting and then taking off when you go back to the car. Um, <laughs> George, you, you know, from your world in the CTO space, um, when, when you think about a lot of the people you're working with are, are kind of, you know, technical. They, they're used to working via terminal or remote and, and certainly from a development point of view. What's that sort of remote to sort of coming back to the office experience been like just briefly kind of, I, I imagine the techies from a development point of view, certainly engineering point of view, we're probably a little more comfortable with it because we're used to sort of working via command line or remote screens anyway.
2: Yeah, I, I think the thing that people miss, even though we're halftime back in the office, like you mentioned, that, that people miss is that face-to-face interaction. We do have, you know, lab. Love, central labs throughout the world where we have a, a concentrated number of engineers and that collaboration of, of um you know meeting each other and talking about what they've been working on over, over a coffee or something it, i think people are really missing that having been so long remote and even when we're in the office now of course we have to take precautions so um it's we still don't have that back but you know the technology does help webex I really miss when we're trying to solve a, a tough problem and we need like two days to hash it out, flying to a lab and getting in a conference room and and hashing it, hashing it out. Yeah, that's that's what I re- I really miss. But you know we do it through uh, maybe a couple hours of time on WebEx and we um, we have adapted.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's sort of no WebEx uh, Zoom screen uh, uh, equivalent to uh, somebody performing Jedi mind tricks or the whiteboard marker for a few hours. Is there? <laughs> Um, we
2: have tried tools to do it we 've used stuff like miro and and other tools like that, but it it 's just not the same you know, we We are trying, yeah. but it 's there's something about being together and the body language and all that that you just don 't get
1: otherwise absolutely we are, at the end of the day we are social animals, and I think that comes that, that, you know I think what i 'm really excited about watching what Broadcom and your team inside the the mainframe software division have been doing is seeing the leadership team and the executive team do that return to the office in part and then hopefully find a natural balance. I think, you know, as you both alluded to, there's that, that comfort of rehumanizing and where we're used to, you know, someone, bring, someone having their child bring a sandwich to the, to the thing and waving. I mean, my better half was sitting on the floor in the sunroom the other day doing a, a video call and our puppy dog just came and sat right next to her and just took part in the call. And now everyone's like, "Where's Ruby dog? Can she join the next call?" You know. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think you both, as you said, you, you know, you both hit the nail on the head there. And that is, there's a middle ground that's comfortable, and we're going to get to it. And I think it's a good thing. But at the same time, there's there's a, a purpose for some of these in person things. Well, let's uh, let's pivot now onto the key points I wanted to cover today, if you don't mind. And thank you for the insights into both yourselves and your roles. I, it's great to kind of get a sense that. Uh, you know, not only have you gotten through this very, very well and, and, and that you've actually led substantial teams in a very large organization successfully through this to the point where you are now coming back to normal. And congratulations both to you on that. I think it's a credit to you both individually, professionally and personally as well as a credit to your teams that you've been able to do this. Because I can imagine you're providing leadership and, and, and direction for your partners and the ecosystem and customers as a whole as you do that, which, which makes life easier for a bunch of us. I wonder if we can maybe pivot to some of the key challenges and opportunities you're now seeing uh, on the mainframe platform from a DevOps perspective. And Peter, I wonder if we can start with you uh, when we sort of think about you know DevOps as a concept. We, it's a new coinage in, in many ways, and, and, and people are still coming to grips with what uh, sort of combining the development and the operation worlds alike and, and, and how this works. And it reminds me of sort of the pivot we made from sort of traditional waterfall, Prince2 and PMBOK project management to Agile. I wonder if Peter, if we can kick off with you and instead sort of maybe just highlight some of the challenges and opportunities you're seeing on the mainframe platform from from the DevOps p- perspective.
0: Yeah, it sure does. So I like to look at this, if you will, from the point of view of uh, application delivery and, and you know what it meant uh, before DevOps and, and what it means after DevOps, if you will. So, so if you look at application delivery before DevOps, you know it was based on a set of techniques that were uh, non-standard, if you will um you know a lot of the delivery models were very application very platform specific in fact this this was particularly applicable to the mainframe because a lot of the delivery or engineering practices were waterfall based as you mentioned a minute ago you know that there was really not a lot of focus or or a lot of priority uh paid to optimizing you know the 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 delivery model meaning you know the frequency at which code updates were made and and so forth and I think this really created a world where you know you had tools, processes, and uh, people's skill sets. In fact, which were siloed by platform uh, or by project. And, and of course, you know I think we all understand or, or realize that this was, this was particularly applicable to uh, applications running in the mainframe world. But if you look at sort of the after DevOps uh, world. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what actually was the, the trigger for this, whether it was, you know, mobile applications or apps or whether it was the cloud computing model or whether it was, you know, the advent of Agile and, and sort of that inherent need for, um, you know, more frequent delivery uh, updates. You know, everything changed. Right. So, uh, you know, the frequency at which application updates were delivered uh, increased um the application delivery uh, techniques and tooling became more standardized you know you can look at jenkins as you know the backbone of a lot of that uh, which you know obviously many organizations are using today Uh, and you know the application delivery models were made to integrate across all the deployment targets including the mainframe Uh, and you know i think uh, this model allows organizations to realize the benefits of that which is, you know, yeah. um, frequent, frequently with quality. You know, mainframers probably already believe they have some of this covered. I think, you know, folks on the distributed side trying to influence that is where, where there's a bit of a cultural uh, clash. Um, you know, opening the mainframe is a big, big part of this. Uh, you know, I think we're going to talk about that a little later, but, you know, standardizing the interfaces uh, that can be used. Uh, and therefore, the tooling that you can apply is, is one of the huge advancements that we've seen, you know, within the last uh, several months or years.
1: Yeah, I guess there's an interesting uh, interesting uh, pivot that's taken place, isn't it? Because, you know, once upon a time, the mainframe sort of was the standard, it was the open platform, and then the world changed around it, and and we went off in various directions. And then sort of, you know, what we often refer to as open source <laughs> sort of happened. And and that kind of shocked people for a while, and then, and then it sort of started to... Lead back into some of the more fixed, solid, proprietary platforms, and and the mainframe often gets uh, uh, sort of given a a very negative rap from that unfairly. When in reality, it was probably one of the most open platforms, most well-documented platforms, and easy platforms to develop on and get to. It just was maybe treated as a niche industry, and then now we're seeing the mainframe being sort of you know what I like to refer to as one of the biggest Linux boxes and the biggest cloud boxes on the platform. And people get surprised and like, oh, really? It's like, yes, absolutely. You know, APIs are not a new concept in this world, right?
0: Another aspect to that is, I think mainframers have traditionally uh, placed their priority around automation. And when it comes to continuous delivery or DevOps practices, it's all about automation,
1: right? Yeah, it's that um, that process of you know uh, script everything you can, automate everything you can, and uh, where possible, uh, you know, avoid human error, right? Because I mean. Uh, if you're running the same thing every hour, every day, consistently, whether it's running a payroll or, or credit card batch processing or real-time processing, if you can uh, take the human fingers off keyboards where things are tested and documented and, and proven and deployed to production, then that uh, that definitely makes the world better if you can bring that into the development cycle for you know compile and test and integrate and so forth, that, that brings the same consistency into that DevOps world, doesn't it?
0: it? It certainly does.
1: When we think about this from a technical point of view, George, I mean, you, Developers have been used to a lot of these uh, concepts for for decades and decades in the mainframe space, um, but I imagine that when we sort of think about it under the guise of this whole new exciting coinage of DevOps, it's it's probably brought a slightly different perspective to it from you, your world on the mainframe platform. That is, that developers have got a slightly different approach to it now. They want a slightly different type of openness. How has this sort of brought about new challenges and opportunities in the mainframe platform from the DevOps perspective in your world?
2: What we see with with customers is that the one of the biggest challenges that, for them to bring DevOps to mainframe is is really around the architecture of their apps and, and somewhat their processes. So, uh, you know, as Peter was saying, a lot of the apps are sort of monolithic. There's not a lot of automated testing traditionally and, you know, the DevOps is all about continual incremental deployment, not redeploying a whole monolithic app. It's it's also um, challenging if, if you don't have any automated tests or the large um, part of your testing is manual. You really need to start making progress in that in that uh, in that automation, especially in the te- in the test area. So um, we we talk with customers about how they can you know add APIs onto their monolithic apps so that they can start writing some automated tests. How they can take Advantage of modern tools when with some of the open interfaces that the mainframe now has and integrate those modern um, testing tools and so they can start making progress the, the key here is you know sometimes it just seems unsurmountable so we we try to work with each client and figure out you know what what their biggest challenges and where we can get some big early wins by by doing something yeah. and then we find the momentum sort of builds from that right and they they're like oh wow that was successful and that's saving us time what's the next step and we we can help them do this adoption and and figure out the right the right places to push and i just wanted to make one other point off of what peter what peter made is the the culture here is really important typically mainframe Traditional mainframe app development shops are not DevOps shops. They don't have that do- DevOps culture. They they're probably um, you know an older set of engineers, and they come from uh, maybe even a waterfall background. But and it's imperative that they they start changing that, not just for the for the application's sake uh, to deliver faster, but if they're going to get these newer, more uh, younger, perhaps modern developers coming into their organizations and they, they want them to work on these applications, they're going to expect a DevOps process. That's what they're used to. That's what they know works. And they've got to move to that or they're not going to attract these developers. It's going That cultural barrier will, will continue to grow over time.
1: Yeah, so that's a great point you made because I know that you've been doing some amazing things uh, as far as running key initiatives around education and reskilling and training, and certainly the the uh, mainframe university uh, projects and so forth. Where um, as you said, you know, as, as different uh, generations, I mean, one of the biggest challenges I see in organizations is some of them are dealing with as many as five different generations of the the boomers and the Gen X and Gen Y and and even interns in the Gen Z space now. And, you know, even even my, my kids who are 16 and 19 are sort of in that, that latter part. And then you've got the millennial sort of umbrella across the top. Younger kids coming out of university have learnt uh, continuous development, continuous improvement, CICD. They have grown up as sort of you know as cloud natives, and they've never known life without a mobile phone. They had, and they want that continuous improvement. You know, just write one new patch or fix an update. Don't re- refactor the entire thing. And yet, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got, uh, you know, I remember the Y2K experience where we were quite literally, you know, people joked about it, but we, we were trying to find cabbies, tra- ex-cable coders running around as cabbies in London who knew how the old banking systems worked um, and try and put them, put them in the same room and they were like oil and water, um, which is quite funny. But I guess this, this this pivot in many ways is sort of happening to organizations, whether they are prepared for it or not. And I guess this is where you were able to help them out, uh, George, in that. The, the tools you're developing, the processes, the methodologies that you've developed and documented and that you are training and skilling people on, you can come in and help people make that shift and you can help them re-engineer their processes and remodel their approach to get to the point where they are making these discrete uh, sort of CIDC approaches with DevOps as opposed to just these big monolithic version one, version two, right? I imagine that's had a very positive yep. response from some of your customers who are facing the challenge and realizing they're not geared up for it and then they're able to look to you to help make that shift.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, we have this experience our, internally ourselves. We've brought almost three hundred new engineers into our organization, you know, and a, a good a good amount of our code. Yeah, you know, for the products is assembler code. So we've we've um we these young developers that have come in have really helped us understand how we can you know, first hand knowledge trans transition our application development internally to DevOps processes, which we've um, really made great progress and strides on. And in turn, we we take what we've learned there and we can help guide our customers as they try to make these transitions themselves.
1: Well, George, that leads me to my next question. I might stay with you if that's okay, George. I mean, when we think about these shifts and these these changes, I, I mean, you know, there's some direct impact. Uh, on these organizations in, in changing their behavior, changing their culture, changing their approach to software development, software design, software engineering, deployment, the, the changes around, you know, dev, test, integration, training, production, DR, and, and so forth. Um, George, what are some of the key impacts uh, and, and particularly the potential of those impacts for opening up the mainframe with this sort of approach?
2: Yeah. So it's an interesting question. I mean, I mean if you just step back even not from the mainframe and you look at what's going on in in innovation in business these days you know almost all of the innovation in app dev or digital transition that is it's going on leveraging open whether it's open apis or services or reusing open source components which you know do things that would take years to develop in-house on right. their own it's you know the innovation is is um it's it's about leveraging these these op- open components and services like you look at you know all the innovation that's come out of you know mashing up google maps and gps data and you know all of a sudden uber's uh business disrupt- disruptor in transportation similar with airbnb and some of these financial corporations that have have Moved online, all all of that is due to leveraging open, and I think these business the business opportunities disruption is going to continue to occur this way, and unless um, we bring that same type of ability to leverage open in mainframe, it, um, w- we're at risk of of not you know of not being able to move with the times. So Broadcom has really been trying to lead the initiative to open up the mainframe. And, you know, I know most people probably listening to this broadcast know about Zoe and the open source Zoe initiative to open up the mainframe through APIs and command line interfaces. And Broadcom is a a true, true believer in this. We've, we've donated, I think over half the source to this, that the Zoe project has. And, and we're really, um, we're, trying to leverage zoe in in our products and our strategies so not only are we leveraging zoe for our internal devops processes and as we're um, recommending for our customers but we're enabling our products with apis that are conformant to zoe so opening up our traditional products like sysview netmaster or our security products so Customers can get at the data that's in those products through APIs and do further automation. So, you know, we're really trying to take what our or GM calls an an open first strategy. The, you know, above all, we're trying to give our customers the freedom to leverage open source and open services and and not lock them into a to to a proprietary way that Broadcom sees the world, but. To be able to um, to leverage what we deliver, along with the stuff that they might find in open source, and give them that that freedom of choice.
1: Indeed, so, and, and there's no greater champion than Greg Lotko of uh, this whole process. Oh yeah, is there? <laughs> he's a he's a he's a, a champion and a legend in so many ways. No, I think you've made some great points in it, and I, I'm so fond of the the whole journey that Zoe's taken us on, and 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 you know just love what you've been doing around that space. I mean it's a great initiative and, and Broadcom and your team have been doing some amazing things to, not just with Zoe, but just using that as as I guess a, a way to kind of start the conversation. And and I imagine it was one of those things where like you sort of visually pushed the snowball to the top of the hill and all of a sudden it went over the other side and just developed a life of its own and now everyone's sort of running to keep up with it. It's it's one of those things where as the change started, it changed it created such a cultural shift that now people are not really asking the question, should we go there? It's like when, when or how? And I guess this is where kind of you're you're there ready, willing, and able to help them. Peter, when I think about this from impact and potential of opening up the mainframe platform, from a business perspective, this brings about a number of other key business benefits and, and opportunities as well, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it really does. I mean, the, the, the open-first approach that, that George was describing really applies to the DevOps use cases. You know, we've applied it across the Broadcom portfolio, so... You know there's many use cases that it opens up from uh, operations point of view from a DevOps point of view or or you know just strictly from the platform point of view uh, what, you know when you look at it from that in that way
1: what the, what's the reaction you get from from organizations when they have come from a very tr- traditional sort of mainframe closed shop point of view? And then you start that conversation with them around the openness and just opening the platform up and, and showing them the, the ways you can you apply your tools and capability and methodologies to to changing the way they do development, changing the way they engineer their software. You must get some interesting responses initially that then sort of you know, ease into, oh, okay, now I get it, I understand it. What, is it a case of like sticker shock in some cases, or is it just this eureka moment where it makes sense? I mean, I'm really keen to kind of get a, a sense on what you're, uh, what sort of you know that's like when you have those conversations, sort of whether it's uh, on a WebEx these days in 2020 or, or pr- predominantly previously sort of in boardrooms and closed doors. It's like, hey, we've got a, a better way. Can we show you? You, you must get some interesting reactions in, in those conversations to this whole approach of opening the platform up.
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends, it, that's certainly true. I think it depends who you're talking to, you know, in the end. But, uh, you know, it's all about choice. I think, you know, one of the things that our clients come to realize quite quickly is, you know, based on the open first approach. You know, there's just so so many more options and so many more tools that can be applied. You know, they may not know about some that we have to educate them to, to a certain extent, uh, you no, but it's really about choice. Um, you can see that in some of the work that we're doing uh, around the developer experience, which is a good example. You know, many mainframe application development shops are, you know, still using 3270 green screen interfaces. You know, we've opened up, uh, you know, the Eclipse Shea project uh, and enabled it for uh, Z uh, plugins. Uh, we, you know, contributed uh, extensions to VS Code. And so as you look at, you know, choice of uh, development environment, you know, you you could stick with the 3270 green screen or you could go with uh, something that's more modern that, you know, really speaks to the distributed side or the younger, you know, newer mainframe developers. Right. I think the other thing, uh, Des, you know, that I would highlight, and this kind of goes back to the culture point, uh, you know, we've got a couple offerings in Broadcom uh, that... And help folks uh, help our clients get started on their DevOps journey on the mainframe. Uh, you know I know you had talked to the Singh uh, uh, uh a couple of weeks ago about our win no fee offering. Uh, you know that's a services program that um, removes some of the risk from our clients you know when they want to try out new things like DevOps and the DevOps tooling or, or some of the newer technologies. Our design thinking workshop has been tremendously successful. You know that's a no fr- no fee offering. Uh, it's really helping customers explore their goals, you know, risks, challenges uh, around what it means to adopt a, a DevOps approach. You know, we we start with their as-is uh, state, and you know, over the course of the day, uh, we bring them to a to b uh, kind of solution state uh, and give them a, a phased approach on on how to adopt. Uh, so again, it strikes that that cultural aspect that we mentioned a few minutes ago, but uh you know two two key areas that our clients can uh, can test out with us
1: yeah it's, uh, I always have this uh, mental image of, uh, of the classics at a mainframer, and uh, I think it was a t shirt once that said that you can uh, you can have my terminal when you pry it from my dead cold fingers but um uh, I, I, <laughs> I think those days are long gone, and and you know, it can. Kind of, I, I remember walking through a Microsoft uh, office once, and there was more people driving Macintoshes than there were PCs running Windows. And I was like, do "You realize what's happened here?" And they're like, "What do you mean?" It's like you you really got an open development environment where people are just using the platform that makes the most sense to write good code, and they were kind of shocked at it. But um, uh, you know, I'm big keen to learn a little bit more about this whole No Fee uh, uh, program because I I know. Um, when you talk to some of these large organizations, they're looking for a, a first point of call to kind of say, well, where do we start? Tell us what that kind of journey is when you, you do these workshops with them to sort of just start to broach the idea of what opening the mainframe platform's is like. Um, when you do have that conversation, what are some of the key steps you walk them through with some of these initiatives to sort of go, well, look, let us show you how we've been approaching it internally because we've gone through this and refactored some of our own code or change our process methodologies. Let us show you what we've done with other clients what are those sort of key steps like? Are they a, a sort of very high level conversations, or do you you tend to get into the technical nitty gritty very quickly to sort of show hands on?
0: Well, I think the design thinking workshop is really the better example of where we you know get our hands super dirty in terms of you know jamming over the course of a full day on uh, you know what what the client's doing today, uh, which uh, people are involved in the various processes, which tools are they using. You know, there's a lot of ways they can attack it or get started. You know, there's that basic continuous integration approach, you know, which is fairly frictionless. It's, you know, they're already integrating code today. So, you know, adopting a continuous integration approach, uh, approach is certainly, you know, a good starting point. Um, there's, you know, IDEs and uh, development task automation. We talked about modernizing that developer experience. That's that's another good starting point. Uh, there's also automated testing. George was talking about that uh, earlier. You know, there's a lot of headroom there because, you know, while the operations side has been focused on automation uh, for decades, I think the application development side, when it comes to test automation, in particular, has has not really embraced that. Uh, and then there's this overall notion of, you know, integrating a pipeline, you know, with scanning technologies, which are low hanging, uh, looking for security exposures in static code analysis, another kind of low hanging fruit, uh, and other. Uh, tooling that preps environments, loads data, and runs test cases. So it really runs the gamut. But, uh, you know, they've been highly successful. We've run through, you know, a couple dozen so far, and uh, they're pretty exciting, you know, to see that transformation in that short amount of time.
1: Well, it's fantastic to see. And you touched on an interesting point there. And Peter, maybe I can just get you to kind of give us a quick comment on this. When you think about some of these environments, I mean, developers sort of when, they, when they're you when know, they either working on projects at home that are open source and they give the code away for free at university or they maybe get their first couple of jobs and they're working on a piece of code, they don't tend to have a, a grasp or a concept or some sort of sense of realisation of just how large these code bases that they are going to get exposed to on long-running platforms that are mainframe based. You know, when you think about... A payment gateway for for a credit card environment, or a a you know a travel booking platform for, for an airline. I mean, these are not just a couple hundred a couple thousand lines of code. These are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of lines of code. And a small change here can have a significant ripple effect, not just in the design and and so forth, but also as you you alluded to, uh, a the code might not run, but b it might even introduce a security risk. And I guess this is something that's a big factor. Um, in, uh, and, and maybe, Peter, I can get you to sort of comment on it, that the tools that you bring to this are not just about changing the behavior and the culture towards a CICD, but also providing that security and protection of doing code-based analysis, looking at the type of data and protecting companies from risks in making the transition to sort of more an open approach, I guess, as well. Is that a fair comment?
0: Yeah, oh, that's completely fair. I mean, DevSecOps is is certainly a thing, and that security aspect of that needs to be built into the pipeline and built in uh, in an automated way so that it triggers every time. You know, I don't think they teach that at universities. I think the other thing that's relevant to a lot of the large financial institutions that are, you know, currently running applications on the mainframe is uh, regulatory compliance, you know, and ensuring that, you know, application updates are not inadvertently uh, you know, uh, violating uh, any of the compliance uh, uh, regulations. So that's another area where you can build that into the pipeline if if you're approaching it in a smart way.
1: So, George, I wonder if I can come to you now on this. I mean, when we think about uh, some of the great initiatives you're running across Broadcom's mainframe software division, I see this sort of, you know, uh, double-ended thing where you've got new fresh faces coming in from, you know, internships and graduate programs where you're bringing them into this space and teaching a bit about the benefits of developing and, and designing an engineering code on the mainframe platform. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got uh, professionals who have been in the world for, for you know, 10, 15 years or so in different types of career paths and you're reskilling them and helping them pivot in their role to sort of come to the mainframe platform and 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 get into your world. That that must uh, be an exciting thing to be running internally yourselves, but you must actually have seen some amazing outcomes uh, by being able to do this at both ends of the spectrum, either reskilling people into in new roles um, and then putting it back into organizations or bringing fresh new faces into the program through just you know showing them the benefits of, of, of an open mainframe platform and and the you know what a life as a developer or a software engineer and so forth on the mainframe looks like love to get some insights on what some of those programs are like and, and how they're running
2: yeah well absolutely there, there's a lot to talk about here but I'll, I'll try to summarize we, we're definitely seeing not only university hires who are interested in learning about the mainframe and bringing their skills to the mainframe but we are seeing this Sort of resurgence in people who have um, who who know technology, maybe been on you know, a cloud developer and are interested in getting into the mainframe. Maybe they've seen it in the headlines or they've they've read about this um, resurgence of modernizing mainframe apps and it, and an interest in and certainly we we within Broadcom we've uh, we've hired both these types and it's and even within our ranks. Uh, mainframe developers have gotten interested in, in front-end web development and vice versa so we're, we're always sort of um mixing and matching trying to cross skill within our organization but when we talk to clients we hear that, that one of the problems that they've been having is they're not able to hire someone new and and train them up on the type mainframe technologies they just can't get that um, that hiring chick before this someone retires or something like that. So we've implemented a program where we actually help them, and we will. It's called the Vitality Program. We'll hire someone in, train them up on mainframe, train them up on um, perhaps some broadcom technology like um, datacom or IDMS or some of our security products, and then we'll we'll put them out into the customer site to do on-site, sort of um, on-the-job learning with the customer. And then if they're successful, the customer has the ability to then hire that person. And we do this all sort of at Broadcom's cost. And it's been a hugely successful incident. It started in, in the U.S. and is now an international program that we have a lot of customers taking us up on. And um, the people that come into these programs are typically um, skilled engineers and are looking to start a new career path in mainframe. So it's beneficial not only to Broadcom, to the customer, but also, of course, to the participants in this program.
1: Yeah, there's so many upsides in this that we could spend a whole day just talking about this topic on its own as a separate show. When, When you think about the overall scope of kind of what Broadcom is doing for mainframe DevOps, I wonder, Peter, if I could come back to you, When you when you try to encapsulate this and and convey it um, in a in a short succinct format, it's it's a very broad topic. But when you think about the overarching uh, message around what Broadcom's doing for mainframe DevOps as a whole, Peter, how do you describe this? uh, When you sort of have an opportunity to start with a a a first contact with an organization of any form, and sort of you try to outline this, what does that sort of sound like as, as a broad message? As, as far as what the Broadcom's mainframe software division is doing uh, in in the DevOps space of the mainframe. How how do you convey that? How do you hit those sort of key points of of where that journey starts and some of the, the tools and capabilities and, and and so forth? I imagine it's a, an interesting conversation, but how do you sort of convey that in, in a succinct format?
0: Well, I think, you know, like we said before, there's a lot of different starting points. I think one of the low-hanging fruit that we mentioned a minute ago is that static code analysis. We have a lot of clients who, you know, wanted to get into mainframe DevOps and started with, you know, what does it mean to scan uh, millions, literally millions of lines of code, which, you know, currently take them, you know, hours and hours to do and and boil that back down to, you know, tens of minutes. Uh, I can think of, you know, three, four clients that are doing that right now and, you know, realizing very tangible, very immediate benefit as, as a result of starting there. Uh, you know, we have other clients who want to relate to the distributed side of the business. You know, GitHub is obviously hugely popular uh, on the distributed side. I think they're up to like, you know, 90% market share or something ridiculous. Um, you know, we have... A, a, as you are aware, we have CA Endeavor uh, for in the Broadcom portfolio, and you know we have many clients who are using our Bridge for Git solution to kind of bring together the distributed side and the uh, and the mainframe Endeavor side on you know common uh, set of projects or, or you know if you will you know interfaces which are preferable to each of those audiences, but working on the same project. Uh, I You know, I think those are probably two good starting points. We we tend to avoid, you know, the sort of the flowery, you know, increase agility and speed and so forth and, you know, try to get really practical with what clients are trying to do, where they can see value, you know, more immediately.
1: Yeah, that's definitely the sense I've been getting over the last couple of years is that sort of, you know, avoid the fluff of what the um, the three-letter right. acronyms exactly. and all the throwaway uh, terminology is that we often get uh, beaten up with in the media and, and the general press because people don't understand it in the first place. I do generally get the sense that you you know you're kind of getting sneakers on the ground as fast as possible as you alluded to before of actually getting down into the into the trenches and getting hands on running the workshops showing people the business benefits, showing them the technology benefits and you I think you know you outlined before uh, just to touch on a separate point you mentioned that it, around compliance and governance and regulatory requirements i mean it's one thing to write code it's one thing to make sure it's secure and it, it builds and compiles and deploys okay. But is it actually breaking any laws? Is it, is it moving data, leaking data? Is the treatment of the data taking place that, that shouldn't? You know? And we're not just talking about basic GDPR compliance in, in places like Europe or Privacy Act here in Australia, but is someone from uh, sales able to get to something that's in HR that they shouldn't? I mean, I imagine these are big things from a business benefit that you're also able to bring to the table, and that is that, look, we can help you change your culture and behaviour in the tools and the software development engineering, but also from a business aspect, we're able to help you, you know, comply with either in-house or state or, or, or domestic or international regulatory requirements as well. That, that must be a fairly big part of the opportunity.
0: Yeah, that's true. You know, the other thing in terms of entry points that that I was thinking about as you were talking about that is, um, you know, George was talking about the open first approach and being able to apply uh, tooling that exists largely on the distributed side. You know, a good starting point is a lot of our distributed uh, enterprises have uh, DevOps center of excellence and, you know, the mainframe shops who tap into that. Uh, they They get further along on their DevOps journey much more quickly right? and and they start to realize that open first approach first you know straight away
1: Ryan right. George, that uh, kind of I guess leads me to a question for yourself and that is that when we think about this from a technical point of view and and certainly from the software development side of things, you've got a, an amazing suite of tools, and that's been the case before this whole concept of DevOps even became a coinage. Uh, they're now becoming very open and cross platform. Uh, not just mainframe, but other platforms, and integrating from sort of public cloud, hybrid cloud, cloud native, and, and and open source into the mainframe space. How do you describe this sort of shift that Broadcom's brought about, and and what Broadcom's doing in the DevOps space for, for the mainframe world? When you come at it from a from a slightly more technical perspective in your world?
2: Yeah, so I, I perhaps um, a, a bit slanted on this, but I, I I feel like we're doing this in the way that customers want. We are not prescribing the technology or the products that they need to use, but we're opening up their mainframe to a suite of tools that they may already be using, as Peter was saying, and on the distributed side, they already have experience with. And we're just enabling the mainframe to work with that and... Our experience have been no two customers leverage the technology the same you know one customer may be all in on Jenkins for orchestration where another customer has adopted circle CI and we work with all these customers no matter what products they use to try to teach them how to integrate that into the mainframe and I feel like our technology our strategy is the most flexible and allows us to do that. And as we look at working with customers, you know, past IDEs and orchestration to deployment and testing, we're trying to apply these same principles across the whole life cycle. So I think you'll see as we roll out additional capabilities, you're going to see that they're all going to be embracing this sort of open, uh, very flexible, non-lock-in model.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of this visual that I've always had where you know people used to think that you, you know, one of the challenges was to figure out how to knock a square peg into a round hole, and it used to kind of, you know, quote-unquote, do my head in, as we say here, whereas I was always of the mind that it was about providing the right tools at the right time in the right way and then step back and let people figure out what the best journey for them was, in the context of their organisation and various shapes, sizes, types, industries, and so forth. It's impossible to force an airline to operate like a bank and expect the same outcome. They and and, and then you've got the people factor and, and and other various things and the size and scale and and particularly now we're having to deal with not so much just the global pandemic change but also the the significant shift to, uh, I guess. Uh, behavior patterns in the consumer and that is people want a celebrity customer experience they want it to be mobile first they want it to be you know um, uh, always on there's all these different shifts and changes that are happening whether we join that conversation or not i think the key thing that i'm seeing with what broadcom's doing both from a business benefit point of view and a technology benefit point of view is that you are as you're saying opening up the platform providing the tools providing the capability from professional services and workshops through to to education and training and certification all the way down to the, the development and integration and testing and, and you know, data analysis, software code analysis, that people can join where it suits them on that journey and where they are in the journey without having to be forced to retrofit and change their behavior and culture. You're working in lockstep with them rather than them having to fit into lockstep with you. And I think that's one of the big things that I'm seeing from Broadcom globally and across the board is that you're a very... Capably able to join them where they are in the journey, not force them to join you. And I think this is something you you should be, uh, you know, congratulating on across the board. I wonder if I can wrap up with one one final question for both of you. Um, you know, I, I like to kind of, i mean mean—you've given us some amazing insights on what you're doing currently and where we've come from and some of those big pivots and shifts. We're in 2020. There's no secret that we've been dealing with a global pandemic. Uh, people talk about it being a once in a lifetime thing. It's more like a once in a hundred year thing we're at the end of the year it's sort of you know we're in q4 2020 um we're about to hit the end of the calendar year and 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 the sort of the christian holiday period through christmas 2021 it's going to be an interesting brave new year and i hear commentary that people say that it's going to be much the same but without flattening the curve challenge um george i wonder if i could start with you maybe to give us uh, first your take on kind of what the next 12 to 18 months is, is potentially going to look like and uh you know, crystal ball gazing is a little bit difficult because it's kind of like trying to guess tomorrow's lotto tickets. But you are both in a fairly unique position, both in your roles and your organization, to, to have a, a fairly solid lens on where we may be going. Uh, George, I wonder, from a technical point of view, maybe to start off, where do you think, uh, in short form, we're going to be going in the next 12 to 18 months? And what are some of the key takeaways you think people can start to sort of plan to action and potentially even reach out to yourself and your team at Broadcom to, to look to help them get through that 12 to 18 months?
2: yeah sure so certainly it's going to be a challenging eight, you know 12 to 18 months as we um as we look forward to, the world pulls themselves out of this pandemic i think that um both our our customers and uh to some degree even ourselves will will be constrained as we look to see what um happens to the economy as as we pull out but but if if we look past that and we look to the technology that's going to be changing the mainframe and potentially changing the way our customers use the mainframe there's a lot that's going on so our team is looking at containerization in the mainframe very carefully the you know ibm recently rolled out these z container extensions which allow you to to run you know dockerized workloads on the z platform and they've announced that they're also going to have ZOS containers that allow you to run traditional or allow you to containerize traditional Kicks and DB2 workloads, IMS workloads within the Z platform. So my team has been tracking this uh, very closely. We're looking at how our products can leverage these technologies. So if Mark, if customers are um, using ZCX containers, what what does that mean for tools? Um, Like SysView, how does that change what we need to do um, as far as the DevOps portfolio? So we're going to be taking, I think you'll see, a, a leadership role when trying to support our customers as they as they lean in to this new containerized world that's hitting the mainframe.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting world, isn't it? I remember when uh, the concepts of secure containers on the mainframe platform sort of became a real thing, and then we had hardware-assisted uh, encryption and so forth for data in transit or at risk, and, and people were sort of trying to figure out, well, how do we leverage that now? We're sort of talking about sort of, you know, the, the, the public and private cloud containerized model as well, where sort of, you know, all of a sudden everything looks like a zip file, and you deploy it on demand in instantly, and we treat sort of code more like uh, cattle than pets. We don't covet and love it. We just we make sure it works, and then we stand it up and run it, and we kill it, right? <laughs> um, and that's a very big cultural and emotional shift in code for developers. Uh, but but no, I, I think you know I, I think as you just alluded to, it, it's it is going to be an interesting year and a half ahead of us, uh, both for human resource but also business. But uh, I, I think uh, you know as you just outlined there, you're there, ready, willing, and able to help people through that journey. I think the key thing that I would invite our listeners and our audience to do is to reach out as early as possible to yourself, uh, George, and Peter, and, and, and seek that support from a, from a commercial or technology and development aspect to to Absolutely. avoid some of this platform. No, get rid of those pitfalls. Um, Peter, I wonder if I could wrap up with you then uh, with the same view. 12 to 18 months ahead of us, you know, easing out of 2020. 2021 uh, is going to be an interesting year. You know, it's going to be a combination of, of people challenges, but also you know, more more likely business challenges, as uh, George just alluded to, with regard to some of the economic impacts and so forth. When you look at it from your role as far as product management uh, context goes and, and and probably slightly more commercial conversations, next 12 to 18 months, in, in your view, Peter, where, where are we going and what are some of the things that people should be thinking about and, and keeping on their agenda uh, item lists of, of boardroom meetings to sort of look at, well, you know, what's coming at us and, and what do you think they could potentially consider? And as I said, you know, potentially reach out as soon as possible to yourselves at Broadcom's uh, mainframe software division to to seek that help.
0: So I think, um, you know, hopefully, knock on wood, the, the pandemic will be more under control or, or over <laughs> within the, the next 12 to 18 months. I think, you know, what the pandemic has shined a light on uh, when it comes to the mainframe world or the applications on the mainframe uh, world is, you know, the heavy reliance on the mainframe. Uh, you know, you, sort of the simple way to understand that statement would be to just kind of envision, you know, how much cash do you have in your wallet? You know, what stores have you frequently and handed them cash? You haven't. Right. None of us have, you know, to the degree that we may have in the past. Rather, we're using our credit cards. You know, we're shopping more online, uh, and and of course that's creating transactional load and data and processing on the mainframe. I, you know, what do I mean when I say that? Then, so you know, as we get into the next 12 to 18 months, I think what you know, line of business owners and and IT shops are going to realize is, you know, the value of the mainframe is real. You know, it 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 will have helped them through you know, some of the uh, increased, uh, you know, volume of of transactions and so forth during the pandemic, you know, it has the value that it always has had. uh, And, you know, organizations are really going to have to figure out, you know, what does it really mean to uh, leverage the applications that they just haven't touched, uh, you know, in quite a long time? And what kind of tooling and what kind of techniques are they going to need or or, or application understanding, application modernization approaches, are they going to need? Uh, to be able to modernize those applications and continue to get value out of them. So, you know, if I had a crystal ball, I would say that there's uh, probably some activity that's going to occur along those lines. And, uh, you know, that's a business opportunity for Broadcom. And I know there's others already doing that in the industry Uh, to a large degree. I think application modernization has really taken on a tone of what it means to uh, remove or move applications off the mainframe to other you know, computing environments. You know, I think our point of view is really rooted in in the idea that modernizing in place is is less costly, it's less risky, uh, you can still achieve the same kinds of benefits uh, that you would if you move the applications off platform. But, you know, I think the pandemic has really shined or shown a light on that, uh, you know, that the applications are valuable and, and you know, the owners of those applications need to figure out how to tap into them
1: more fully. I love it. Well, wow, what a great, uh, what a great wrap up on both of you. Thank you very much. Well, uh, Peter, George, it's been an absolute honor and a privilege to have you both on the show today. It's been an hour of power, and I've really appreciated both your insights into yourselves individually and your roles and how they've been impacted uh, over this interesting, curious year and uh, some of the amazing initiatives that that you're own parts of the business being bringing to the market but also as, as an organization as a whole the mainframe uh, uh, software division inside broadcom's been bringing whether it's in training education certification through the you know i guess the business focus or the technology focus really appreciate your time it's been great to chat with you both thank you so much for sharing some great insights and thanks for your uh, over the horizon views i i look forward to seeing how they pan out in the next 12 to 18 months but in the meantime uh stay safe and uh, continue your great, amazing work uh, within your own teams and your organization. And, uh, and I think uh, I speak for a number of us who say thank you, and we're very grateful for the amazing work you've been doing keeping the lights on in some of the biggest uh, IT shops in the world. And uh, we appreciate the fact you'll continue to do that for many, many years to come. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the show again, uh, either jointly or, or individually over the next uh, year or so again.
0: Looking forward to it. Thanks next. very Thanks much, Tess.